The following presentation was recorded live at the 2015 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products, visit www.bioneers.org. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this really special session on climate change strategies and breakthrough strategies for climate change. Um, just so you know a little bit about what we're going to be doing, we're going to have the panelists speak, but we're also really wanting this to be interactive. So there will be um, an exercise and some Q&A. Um, you can see the microphones on either end of the aisle. So I just want you to know that we know there's been a lot of talking, and we also want to hear from these amazing women, but we also know that you have things to say and, and have questions. Uh, my name is Osprey Oriole-Lake, and I am the founder and executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network. And our acronym is WE CAN, because we all can, right? We can. So uh, our organization works nationally and internationally with uh, women around the world on the front lines of climate change. And we do trainings and advocacy work, uh, and we also do large mobilizations. So uh, I'm particularly honored today to be with all these amazing women because uh, our research shows that while women are the front lines of climate change and are the most negatively impacted by environmental degradation and climate change, they're also central to solutions. And women all over the world always tell us, we are not victims, we are the solution. And so it's uh, particularly special today. I didn't know I would be hosting a panel with, with all women on this topic, so I'm really excited uh, that we can hear from these women today. I'm going to do uh, some brief introductions and then get started asking some questions of our panelists. Sitting next to me, directly to my left, and I know you know because you're here in the plenary, is Adriana Quintero. She's the Director of Partner Engagement for the Natural Resources Defense Council and Executive Director of Fosse Verdes. And she's done a lot of groundbreaking work as an environmental leader um, in the Latino community and beyond. And let me just put it this way. This is the kind of attorney we want on our side and on the side of Mother Earth. So please welcome Adriana. You have your mic. Okay, Thank you. It's okay, so great to be here. It's okay. And then, uh, again, another uh, keynote speaker sitting to her left is Ariel Duranger, and she is truly one of the most powerful and tireless activists working to resist the devastation of the fossil fuel industry in Canada from the tar sands. And uh, she's an amazing speaker, as you know. Um, and I think it, she's really moved me because, of course, she's fighting, as she should, for her ancestral lands and uh, her people's way of life, but really for all of us. Because if we don't have these forests where she lives, or this oil gets extracted out of the tar sands, that's trouble for all of us. So I see her you know, protecting her community first and foremost, but also for all of us. And um, I had the honor a few years ago of going to one of the healing walks in the tar sands that she's been central in organizing and was deeply moved and um, changed my life forever to really walk through the devastation of what, what's happening with the tar sands. So please welcome, give a warm welcome to Ariel. Thank you. She's also an amazing bookworm, and I always, every time I come to Bioneers, I'm always asking her for her next book to read. She's an avid reader. I have lots of books you should all read. <laughs> Not that I've written, but other people. Suggestions. So she's got great suggestions. 
And then, of course, uh, we have uh, Annie Leonard, who we all love so much and know, and she's the executive director now of Greenpeace USA. And I also just want to give a shout out because of this week, I think we, cause I'm doing it every day around Shell Oil. It wasn't just Greenpeace, but they were really central. So thank you so much for that decision on Shell Oil that Greenpeace was so engaged in. Um, she has also done incredible work and, you know, decades of work um, in the environment, um, but she's only 24. Um, <laughs> decades, but only 24. We don't know how that works, but anyhow. Um, and, uh, as, of course, we know her very much from the film The Story of Stuff, which has been viewed 50 million times. It's the most watched online environmental film ever, which is incredible. And the last thing I'll say about Annie is that I don't know about you, but whenever she talks, I just want to do what she's doing. So she has some, also some kind of extra charm that uh, is wonderful to welcome today. So welcome to all of you. Um, so the first question that I want to ask you, um, and I, I think probably people who are in this room have been following your work, um, you know, have a similar question, which is, um, you know, your involvement with the urgency of the climate crisis and our need to act now, I mean, obviously we, we are seeing these reports that right now uh, this is the hottest year on record. Um, and even though there's been tremendous momentum and we're seeing huge amounts of hope even generated here this weekend, I'm, I feel like my cup is flowing over with excitement and inspiration. You know, we also need to keep our eye close on the fact that this is all that we're doing. It's still the hottest year on record, and we need to continue to do all that we can around the climate crisis. And so the question is, um, if you could tell us, and I think we'll just go down the line here, uh, really what, um, around your climate-related work, and what is the most important breakthrough strategies that you have found to be like the most dynamic and the most effective, if you could talk to us about your strategic work. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your introductions, for being here, and for all of you for being here. The truth is that it's, it's, it sounds a little oversimplistic, but I think it goes to what my talk was earlier. It's about really bringing in all of the voices, and additional and new voices, because especially in the climate space, I feel like we get caught up in a lot of the science, the terminology, um, and it's all hugely important. But it's also a distraction. And it, in some way, makes it hard for us to feel like we're all part of the solution. Because it puts it as something that, unless you're a scientist and unless you know all of this and have the history of what, the, what, the, what does it mean, what does a cop mean, and all of this stuff, you feel alienated. And you know, maybe I shouldn't go there. But the truth is, is that I think the most effective strategy is inclusion. It's making sure that we have the single mom, the hunter, the farmer, the Latino activist, the dream act, uh, activist, the African-American activist, the preacher who works with gangs to make sure that they're off the streets. We really need all of these people to be part and parcel of this. And it's on us to be able to communicate in a way that is engaging and not alienating. Um, so for me, that's one of the most effective strategies because when you get in front of decision makers, they know what we want. They don't really know what all of these other people are there to talk about. They'll often assume, oh, she's here to talk to me about jobs, she's here to talk to me about violence, she's there to talk to me about immigration. 
when you get in there and you talk not only about those issues, but you also talk about climate change and you weave that in there, all of a sudden you see this shocked look on their faces like, oh, wait a minute. I can't just put you in a box and forget about you. You're part of this too. So it creates accountability. I find that to be extremely powerful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Carol? You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> um, very similar uh, is what I was going to say, is that one of the, the, the question being, what breakthrough strategies have you found to be most dynamic and effective? And it, for me, um, sort of in my journey entering into the environmental movement as an indigenous rights activist, um, it was doing that, <laughs> being an indigenous person, moving into a new movement, which is this exactly what you're talking about, this cross-sectoral collaboration. Without cross, like without finding those common threads that bring us all together, which is the necessity to have a stable ecosystem that is central to everything. And like everything from the, the food we eat, the air we breathe, the water we drink, to the economy. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't exist without that common thread. Um, healthy, healthy children, um, fair labor, like everything is central to this one core element um, that we've somehow separated from ourselves and separated from all of those movements. And that was, that's one of the things that I think is really powerful about the indigenous rights movement is that it is centrally connected to our relationship with the very thing that keeps everything on this earth alive. And so for me, the, the breakthrough moment was not looking at it as an indigenous rights movement, as a separate thing from the environmental movement, and then all of a sudden being like, oh, it's not separate from children's rights, or labor rights, or Latino rights, or the, or the gangs in the cities. I mean, why are there, why are there gangs in the cities? The, there are gangs in the cities because these are people that have been dis oftentimes displaced from places that go to find camaraderie that are lost, that don't belong in these economic or social structures that look for camaraderie, and they're displaced peoples that are displaced there largely at some point from some sort of environmental displacement from their peoples. And so having those reconnections to those common places has been one of those sort of like aha moments in the climate movement, aha moments, not just in the, in the movement of, of our human consciousness. And, and for me, like it, it's been amazing, but it also comes with its challenges. I think that it's, it's really hard. How do you reconcile all those different movements? How do you reconcile like who stands on the front? Is it the, the facts and science and the, the data that's going to save us? Is it the connection here? Is it the women? Is it the children? And, and I think that that's, I think that one of the biggest challenges is, is um, someone earlier said that it's, we also have to have ego, what, what, it was you. No, it wasn't you. We were talking about, we have to temper the egos within the movements. And we have to, that's one of the biggest challenges is how do we find our humility and how do we become humble in this movement so that we can actually take those steps forwards to be progressive? So for me, it's cross-sectoral collaboration and finding the common thread that we all have and that we're, we're in this together. Thank you. Annie? 
Yeah, I'll admit that um, when you told us that this was one of the questions you were going to ask, what was the breakthrough strategy in our work, I thought, we haven't found it yet. Mm -hmm. We don't know what the breakthrough strategy is. If we had found it, it wouldn't be the hottest year. <laughs> <on Earth. laughs> That's right. So we don't really know yet. We're experimenting, we're iterating, we're trying new things, we're learning. I do think, though, that we have learned over the last five years especially, um, you know, and, and longer than that, many people have been working on this. And so I, I did think of three sort of developments, or I should say leaps, not yet breakthroughs, but leaps that have given me hope about the state of the climate movement. Um, one, which um, both of my sisters here mentioned, is that um, we're not relying on the truth to set us free. For a long time, we thought the truth would set us free. And I said that truth will not set us free because if it would, we would be free. Because we got a lot of truth. We have so much truth that we could print out all those studies and pile them up and build a, a wall all the way around North America to protect us from rising sea levels. <laughs> we have so much data and charts and graphs and parts per million and it's not enough. And we relied too much on the data both in our strategy and in our communications. In our strategy, we thought that good, solid information, truth, would lead to change. So we gave the truth to business leaders, and we gave the truth to Congress members, and nothing happened. And so we printed out the chart in three colors and 3D <laughs> and gave it to them, and nothing happened. And what we realized, what we failed to realize, but we are now realizing, is it's not a shortage of truth that is, is slowing progress. It is a shortage of power. What we need to be doing is building power. So we relied on truth too much in our, in our strategy, strategic analysis. We also relied on truth too much in our communication, is we bombarded people with data and data and data. And cognitive science now has shown us so clearly that facts and data don't move people. If people have a mental frame of understanding something and a fact comes that challenges that frame, the mental frame stays and the facts are rejected. And we've, there's been all these interesting studies of adult education where um, people have had to listen to lectures and then later asked what got into their head. Almost no facts did, but what got into the heads were stories. We relied on facts and we didn't use stories and narratives. It's like the famous um, community organizer Saul Alinsky said, talk to people where they're at rather than, rather than, rather than where we're at. We failed to do that. So that's our, our, our one big progress we've had is we're realizing that facts are not going to win this. Power and stories and human connection are. The second development that really makes me happy in the climate movement is that there is a, a shift happening now from a focus on the tailpipe, the emissions, to a focus on the wellhead, the keep it in the ground. That rather than trying to regulate emissions, or I should say in addition to trying to regulate emissions and ridiculous carbon offsets and horrific cap and trade and all that crap, that it just reinforces the fundamental market logic that got us into this mess, people are now saying, no, you cannot extract this oil from the Arctic to the Amazon. Keep it in the ground. They say, keep the oil in the soil. Keep the coal in the hole. Like People are saying, no. And there's a term now that for all the communities around the world that are rising up and drawing a line, which is blockadia. 
Blockadia is this new global community that's saying you may not extract this oil. So I'm really excited about that shift from the tailpipe to the wellhead. And then the third thing, which both my sisters here talked about, is the expansion that it's not just about climate. The climate problem is so complex and systemic, and we are not going to solve it unless our analysis and our solutions and our movement is equally complex and diverse and systemic. We cannot solve climate without taking on jobs, without taking on how we deal with, with waste, without taking on race, without taking on, on inequality. And so the fact that our analysis and our movements are beginning to reflect this more systemic understanding, to me, is one of the most hopeful signs out there. Great. Thank you. So um, that's really great answers from all of you. And I know, I know there's a lot of activists in the room. And this is such a great sort of workshop to get these details and some finesse around our own work and how to help us with our own strategy. So it's very, very helpful. Um, the next question I want to talk to all of you about is the fact that we know that uh, the climate negotiations are coming up in Paris this year and very, very soon, starting at the end of November, going into December for two weeks. Uh, some are saying, and I, I think I would agree, that this could be the most important uh, climate talks in our lifetime just because of how they will affect the trajectory of what's going to happen internationally. Um, and, and we know that, of course, uh, what's happening at the local and subnational level is probably more important in many ways than what happens um, at, the, at the climate negotiations, but there's still a component. They do affect international policy. They do set the tenor for the next years to come, so they're also important as well. Um, and there's been a lot of momentum building, uh, you know, over this last year. We've had the Pope weighing in. We've had bilateral conversations between governments that have been very powerful. So there's, there's a lot of momentum, commitments on the table from governments around their carbon reduction emissions. So, you know, we've had a lot of attention this year heading towards Paris. Um, and, you know, I think that many of us realize we're not going to get the agreement that we need or want or that scientists say is required, but it's still a space that we need to advocate in to get the best out of governments that we can. So it, it, it's, it's a mixed uh, uh, accounting of really uh, what, what Paris is about. And I, I think it, it's important to say that um, and, and, and bring it back to, to all of our panelists here that, you know, scientists are telling us that we uh, need to keep 80% of all fossil fuels in the ground, as Annie was talking about, and yet that's not even on the table in Paris. So that's a big problem. Um, governments have agreed to the two degree threshold rise in temperature. With all the commitments in right now, that's not on the table. So without going very far, we can see that, that there's some real complications with this very important uh, negotiation that is really discussing you know, an existential crisis that we're in. So for me, you know, this is where the people's movements, grassroots organization, indigenous peoples, women, everyone, unions, everyone is working is so important because uh, when governments don't do what they need to do, we people do. Power of the people has to. So with this in mind, I, I do want to touch upon Paris and beyond because many of the people's movements are saying it's the road through Paris or to Paris and beyond because we know so much work will need to happen after as well. 
So, you know, from your perspective, uh, whether it's, you know, your, you yourself and your perspective or your organization, um, you know, as we approach the COP21 uh, negotiations in Paris, what would be some of the outcomes that you would like to see there or beyond, whether from governments, civil society, people's movements, or just in general, you know, what do you think we can have happen there? What's so important that comes out of that um, period of time? Um, okay, I'll, I'll start again. That's, yeah, sure. Um, so I think that, again, Paris is an opportunity for us to rethink the way that we say things, you know, to, to both of uh, my sister's points and to tying into what you were saying earlier. For many people, for most people around the world, especially here in the US, which is where we work, Paris is a city in France. And that's it. And that's what Paris means. And some may not even care to know exactly what country Paris is in or know enough about. And that's OK, because we know, because we work in the climate space. Um, how can we talk about this the way we might talk about the, the Olympics, for example? And let's think about this as our country, our worlds, our countries, our world coming together to make some of the most important decisions for our future. Because once you talk about it like that, people are going to start to listen. And so leading up to the climate talks in December, one of the things that I'm trying to do with, with my organization and individually is, is talk about this as that. This is, the, this is the opportunity for countries to come together and lay out what their plans are for the future. But that, to me, Paris is just the beginning. Because what we need to do is hold them accountable. And for that, we're going to need a huge uh, uh, amount of mobilization around the world. And we're going to have to take what have classically been talks that even those of us who work in the climate space have trouble understanding and distilling that into stories that matter. And I think that's where the women's movement, that's where the indigenous people's movement, that's where the youth movement has they have their hand on the pulse and on the solution because they are going to tell stories. They are going to bring those stories to life. We are going to see people um, who have lived this now, who can tell you climate change is real and that they are the proof because they've lived it. They can tell their story. That is how we're going to take Paris from being, um, okay, this is the, the red that this country agreed to is you know, again, the red for most people is color. You know, it has nothing to do with trees or anything else. So we need to use our opportunities, whether and again, our, our our platform, whether it's as individuals or as activists, to help distill that into terminology and stories, because that, that's where we get captured. You know, the story of stuff is, has 50 million views because it tells a story. It captures you. You understand all of a sudden what your role is in this and how humans interact with the result. I think we can do the same thing in Paris, and we must do the same thing in Paris. Otherwise, it's just another very expensive meeting that's not going to get us to the end, which is a solution. Thank you. Um, I mean, absolutely everything you said. Again, it's always hard to follow someone when they are like, 
telling the story that you really want to tell, tell as well. But I think that that's, there's some really good points. I mean, even your introduction on what is, what is Paris? What is the COP21? Um, and it, it is just a bunch of technocratic, pardon my language, I'm not going to totally, but BS. It's a bunch of technocratic BS that a bunch of facts and stats and numbers and red and, and language that everyday citizens don't want to hear. Yet, you know, humanity or people has more, have more interest in things like the Olympics, like watching people go to play sports to represent our countries, yet we're sending representatives from our own countries to go and make agreements that are going to ultimately affect not just our economies <laughs> and the climate, but the justice, social justice issues in our countries. And if they are not done in a way that reflects those stories, those real trials and tribulations of the people that will be a part of that people's movement. They're not going to be inside negotiating the technocratic numbers and agreements and legislation and targets. The people on the outside will be reflecting the needs that absolutely have to be addressed that are often ignored inside the internal dialogue of these meetings. Now, I do agree that that internal dialogue needs to happen inside of the COP and that we need to have real champions inside as well. Because if we just pretend like we can just have the movement on the outside and that that will get, that'll do the job and that the story is enough, we, we're, we're gonna lose on the inside. And so I, uh, I, I'm going to the, to the climate conference um, and I have full accreditation and I will be on the inside. Um, <laughs> But I'm also going to participate on the outside <laughs> because I do believe that the story and the narrative on the outside is what people are going to hear back home. And we have to ensure that, those, that there's not so much of the, you're not going to get anything done inside, so I'm going to just pretend like it doesn't matter because it does matter because those decisions are still going to be made. And those decisions are going to affect us. So there has to be mechanisms of accountability to the people that are telling those stories. And those, that, those stories have to be reflected inside to the people that are creating the technocratic solutions. I don't know if they're really solutions, but the technocratic <coughs> solutions, the numbers and the data and the hard facts. Um, and for me, what I would really like to see is for, for there to be a, a, a dissection of those numbers and data and how they actually really affect the social justice issues. We have spent millions, if not billions of dollars in research on how climate cha change affects our economies, our capitalist markets, our systems, our food, but we haven't looked at how, we haven't spent billions of dollars on how it affects those that are connected to the land. We haven't even done a thorough analysis of how climate, the projected climate, is going to ultimately impact the rights of those that are reliant on fish and the flora and fauna of the world. If we allow that to happen, those people are gonna have an influx into our systems, our cities, our urban centers, and there's going to be serious social uh, structural consequences of that that we have not even taken into consideration when talking about climate change. So cap on carbon, targets for emissions, it's not enough. We have to weave in that social justice narrative, the story of the people into that to those solutions. And my hope is that governments 
and whoever is negotiating these, these agreements inside starts to find mechanisms or at least putting in safeguards into whatever decisions they're making on ensuring that that is understood and fully integrated into any decisions. As an indigenous person, for me, that is integrating bare minimum standards of the recognition of indigenous peoples as defined by the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is, which is free prior and informed consent is at the heart of that. Free of coercion, free of manipulation, prior with enough leeway for them to understand it and informed with the information and not just a booklet, this is climate change, just as a target, read it and give us your answer tomorrow. Um, and it's about having those spaces in those times and these are bare minimums because all of us need to understand it because if you just throw those facts at us, I'm not gonna remember it. Just like, we have all the cognitive science to back that up, so why are we not doing anything to address it? So my hope is that the human justice, social justice issues get at least bare minimum recognition and safeguards are built in around any agreements that are made inside and that the people stories on the outside get reflected and people start paying attention to them like they do like sports. <laughs> Go Canada! <laughs> oh, that sounds really dirty when I say that. <laughs> Thank you. I just thought you could make a funny video of all the delegates going to the cup like it was an Olympics Yeah, thing. right? They could, they could have all their corporate sponsors. They were going to say, you have to have the corporate sponsors <laughs> on there. That. Oh my corporate god. Sponsors. It could that be like a yes men skit. Yeah, that could be good. <laughs> all right, our creative juices are flowing now. <laughs> let's go, let's Next do Next step, it. that's what um, we'll do. When I think about COP, the number one thing I want to see is, is an agreement that's commensurate with the scale of the problem, that, that really embodies the ambition and urgency that the moment calls for. There's a bunch of really specific things I would like to see there, like I would like to see it um, halt to deforestation by 2020. I'd like to see a commitment to 100% renewable energy for 100% of the people Woo! by 2050 without nukes. There's some very specific things like that. Um, but for me, the most important thing for it to include is a very strong equity lens. Um, that the drivers of climate change are, have not been shared, are not distributed equitably around the planet, neither are the impacts. And climate change provides us an opportunity to have either a technocratic false solution that perpetuates inequity or a really systemic solution that addresses inequity. And I really believe we are gonna solve climate change and inequity together or we're not going to do either. <laughs> we're going to, you know, go over the cliff together. It's, it's, we're going to win or lose together between climate and equity issue. And this is a perfect moment to deeply, deeply embrace an equity lens in our solutions. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. Thank you so much. Um, just want to give applause to them for those great answers. Thank you. Um, before we move on, I just wanted to mention that uh, the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network Weekend will also be bringing a delegation to uh, the COP, and um, we have a women's climate declaration that men and women both are signing with a lot of these statements about, uh, you know, our demands, so that it's really clear from people what our demands are, and that's on our website if you're interested, and also after the session if anyone wants to talk about 
uh, Paris, whether you're going or not, there's ways we can organize and be involved in some of these large people movements that are happening and actions that are going on. And I don't want to take time in this session to do it, but I'd be very glad to discuss with people very specific things that people's movements are doing, direct actions, uh, different declarations, all kinds of things are going to be going on that people can participate in, whether they're in Paris or not. But I definitely will say one thing. If we need people out there showing how much they care, because so far, the reason we've gotten as far as we have in terms of the fact that we don't have the Keystone XL pipeline, this recent victory with Shell, is because of people's movements, all of us. And that's going to be also important in Paris. So let's really keep the heat on, so to speak. And as the temperatures rise, we rise with it. So, um, thank you. So, we wanted to uh, do a little exercise here with all of you. If you could find a partner, and uh, you know, now you've heard some of these strategies, we know that you also are very engaged in your own strategic work, uh, whether it's with the climate or the environment in some way as a pioneer. And just have an opportunity. You can each have like four minutes each, and I'll let you know um, in four minutes, and then four minutes again, to just talk about what you have found to be an important strategy in your work. And if you don't have an important strategy, maybe you have a question about a strategy that you're interested in learning more about, something that you have a question about. So we're just going to take a few minutes and give you a chance to talk to your partner and share um, a strategy that's working for you or a strategic question that you have. So go ahead and begin. Thanks. I would love that though to see. Imagine if you had to put the corporate sponsors behind everybody who wanted to be a If you haven't switched, please go ahead and switch. Thank you. Okay, we're going to start winding down, maybe just finishing up your comments. Glad that there's a robust conversation going on here. I'm so curious what they, what they came up with. You should just say yeah. I'm just so curious about what they came up with. I'd love to hear some of yeah. the highlights. I So uh, we really are glad for this robust back and forth session that's really great. And we hope it has really generated some clarity around questions that you want to ask um, now that you've had a chance to dialogue amongst yourselves. There's microphones on both aisles. If people could just go there, we're going to just start taking uh, some questions for the panelists uh, generated from this wonderful conversation that you've had with yourselves. And as you know, it's kind of like a mantra around here. Please keep this to a question. Please keep this to a question and respect that there's a lot of people who want to, to get their question in as well. So let's go ahead and start on this side of the room. If you could say your name. Hmm? Yeah, say your name and sure, we could take a couple. We're going to take a couple of questions. And if you could state your name and organization or just name. Just your name. Please go ahead. Thanks. Okay. Hi, I'm Nelson and I am going to Paris. And... Um, as I understand it, all of the resolutions uh, have to be come back to the court country of origin. Like our delegates have to come back here and get a two-thirds majority of Congress to approve it. 
Um, how can we, and we've had very bad luck with that. I think very, very few. We're one of the climate denier nations, probably the only one. Uh, so my question is, how can we bring story to possibly get those politicians or get, the, get new politicians elected so that we can uh, join the rest of the world and bring about the change we need to bring? Great question. Thank you. We're going to take two questions at a time, so thank you for that. Let's do one here. Say your name, please. Uh, Jerry Dameron of Go Green Culture Foundation out of Maui, Hawaii. Uh, before my question, I just want to say it's really wonderful to have a panel of leader, leading women who are so strong and bold and articulate. And uh, you know, we don't, we males don't feel discriminated against because after a thousand years of a lot of bad decisions by the patriarchy, <laughs> please keep going. You're doing great. Um, Thank you. So my question is around how our group in Maui, who are collecting, we're, we're embarking on a research project to do outreach to 15,000 professionals who have the title sustainability in their job title. And we're, uh, over the next six months, we're collecting what we hope to be hundreds of sustainability best practices for communities. And I would like to know how we can can collaborate with these three wonderful leaders to communicate and um, find out the best strategies that you guys have found in your, your broad travels. So we'd like to collaborate on that. And we're going to be having a summit in March 2016 where we're going to celebrate the 100 top sustainability best practices demonstrated, proven in communities around the world. So I, I really hope we can uh, collaborate on that. Great, thank you. Anybody feel like jumping in? Mm -hmm. I'll have you. A um, couple of thoughts when you guys were talking. First, the thing about our um, the paralysis of our corporate money marinated democracy. Um, we really need to take our democracy back. I, I, I know it's awkward to say take it back because it never was fully functioning. So we really need to help our democracy realize its full potential and um, aspiration. Uh, for Greenpeace, we have realized that the corporate hijacking of our democracy oops, is a, a priority that we all have to work on as environmentalists because our democracy is the best tool out there to advance climate solutions as well as solutions on pretty much any other thing. And we can't access it now because it is under so much corporate control. And I, I've seen this thing that breaks my heart because it is so under so much corporate control. And they're such idiots up on Capitol Hill. It's just incredible. People are turning their back even more on it. And the more that we turn our back to it, the more easy it is for corporations to get in and take more control. So we started a democracy campaign. And it seems weird for an environmental group to start a democracy campaign. But it's one of our most important campaigns because we've got to reclaim our democracy. And our slogan is we want the money out and the voters in. So we are fighting um, financial, um, we're fighting money in politics in terms of influencing elections and regulatory bodies, and we're also protecting the Voting Rights Act because the Voting Rights Act is under assault, and the very people that are being cut out of our democracy through these assaults on the Voting Rights Act are the people who are most hard hit from the impacts of climate change and other environmental injustice. And so if you care about the planet, you have got to care about democracy and join this. We started a really innovative project with Sierra Club, NAACP, and Communications Workers of America, which is unusual to 
have environmental groups, NAACP, and a huge labor union, we've all come together and realized that the corporate hijacking of our democracy is stopping all of our progress. It's called the Democracy Initiative. Check it out online. Please join. Um, it's a really exciting, very, very diverse collaboration that is realizing if some, if some big agreement is made in Paris and we bring it back to our Congress and our Congress can't pass it, we all lose. We've got to get our government functioning again. Very true. I, I think it's, Canada's not any better than the United States when it comes to putting in place like international standards of, or agreements. Um, I mean, we, we signed the Kyoto Agreement and then we pulled out of the Kyoto Agreement. Uh, we've got a prime minister who hasn't fully said he's a climate denier, but he's a climate denier. Um, and, and, and so Canada has this like really insidious thing where they, they smile and they nod and they are really polite and they say sorry, but they're not actually doing anything to address the root causes, they're, they're not taking active role in addressing climate change or the injustices that are happening in our country. Um, and, and then furthermore, as an indigenous person, it, it's compounded even to a deeper level because um, as indigenous people in Canada, not a lot of people know when it comes to democracy, we, we weren't even granted the right to vote until 1960. Um, so there, like my, my dad, <laughs> my dad didn't participate in many, many First Nations and Indigenous people in Canada are completely disconnected from the process, the, the dem democratic process in the country because we've been marginalized and pushed out of that system for so long. Um, we have an election on tomorrow in our country, a federal election, and for the almost, I would say the first time in history, Indigenous people across Canada are rising up and there's a campaign called Rock the Vote. Uh, where for the first time our issues as indigenous people are an election issue, like a front and center election issue because they see the power that we have. And that isn't just because of the numbers. It's because as indigenous people we have unique rights that can actually push and be drivers to enforce countries to actually implement these laws and legislations and international agreements um, that is rooted in treaty agreements and international standards of recognition of indigenous people's rights. So, so I really feel like how do we use those stories? So it's, it, it is about using the stories and the narratives of the marginalizations of certain people to put pressure on government to uphold laws to uphold climate legislation, which is a part of respecting the rights of people. Um, and, and I really do think that the narratives and the stories around utilizing democracy and our rights and the power of the people is a huge, huge part of that. And it, it can't be stressed enough that we have to utilize our voices. Um, and as an indigenous person, I believe in the rock the vote movement in Canada. Like we have to absolutely exercise our democratic rights to put pressure on politicians. And as indigenous people, we have to exercise and utilize our rights as indigenous people to ensure that they are protected within the frameworks and the development of any kind of climate legislation that's being developed. And, and I, I just, I really think I agree. Democracy is broken, and we have to fix it as people. So true, and I think that, that one of the things that I think you alluded to originally that I'd like to add to that, because I think you both covered it spot on, and it's gonna be a challenge getting anything through Congress. Um, we need to look at the next 
for to one year as this is our challenge is to rebuild our democracy because that's the only way we're going to get this done. But in addition to that, I think it ties into the comment that was made afterwards about the sustainability conference. Sometimes showing that there are solutions that are working yeah. goes a long way. Yeah. So let's tell that story as yeah. well. Let's tell the story of renewable power. Let's talk about how we can actually fix these things and make money off of them. Have it be beneficial for communities, for entrepreneurs, for everyone. Not every sustainability solution has been good, and not all of them are, are work um, or are feasible. But many are extremely feasible and proven. We don't need to even, again, we kind of go back to the, what we were talking about, data. Like, let's stop talking about, the truth's not going to set us free on that front either because it's an ideological difference. You know, when you're talking to the fossil fuel industry about, the, about renewable clean energy, it's, it, you can't even have that conversation. So I think the more that we highlight the solutions, whether it's in this forum in Maui by bringing people together and showing what's possible, or whether it's in our communities and in our cities, um, we need to do that. Because once we show people that, then you pull, yes, you're able to talk about the challenges we face, but also the opportunities that we have on the other side. And we don't all feel crippled with fear and a big question mark of how can I move forward. We actually show this, there's a path forward, and, and it's actually good for us. I, I just want to say the answer to the, the Maui person, like, I mean, you're spot on. Persistence. Honestly, how do you outreach to those professionals that are making decisions about it? Persistence, perseverance, never stopping. Just sometimes the best way to get a meeting with someone is to just keep calling and keep emailing and keep calling and keep emailing and being persistent and standing behind your convictions of the work that you're doing. Um, and. And the fact that there are people um, like on, on, Andrea. Andre, Andrea, Andrea. Uh, Adriana, Adriana, oh, I, I was like Andrea. Yeah, I said it wrong. <laughs> um, uh, that they believe in that. That they believe that we need to highlight those best practices. That there are champions standing behind you and finding out who those allies are. By the way, I call that the are we there yet strategy. And anyone who has a kid knows the are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know, uh, can I see you now? Can I see? Nothing is more effective than a child <laughs> to get you to do something you don't want to do. Mom, mom, mom. But, you know, you really have to, like, just bring, bring out your inner four-year-old and just say, can I meet with you now? Can I meet with you now? Can I? Eventually, it Lay works. on the floor and scream yeah. really loud. That, Blockadia. Yeah, Blockadia, Blockadia, you know? Blockadia, there you go. <laughs> And just as a side note, before we get the, the next uh, set of questions, it's also really exciting, I think, that one of the things that's happening in Paris, besides the formal negotiations, is a lot of the things that the people's movements are organizing. And one of the things that they're doing amongst many, having assemblies, you know, many groups like ours are doing events um, to highlight solutions. There's a weekend in between called the Alternative Village, where they're taking over this whole part. Uh, it's about a 30-minute drive out of downtown Paris, where the whole weekend is going to be just demonstrating solutions. And I think it's just so exciting that that space is going to be happening when the climate negotiations are going on. And of course, conferences like Bioneers and so many other places just showing these solutions, which just... Uh, that combined with democracy seems like a really great strategic plan, as far as I'm concerned. So please, let's go ahead on the person who's up next. My name is Kat Haber. I marched across the country last year, uh, 3,000 miles, 246 days in the Great March for Climate Action. We, st <laughs> oh, 
It was a, a humbling mobile meditation, step by step, mostly listening to people who were the other. Uh, we were embraced by spiritual communities throughout. So my question is this. How do we continue to build um, connection within communities that are siloed in their own grassroots organizations? They have so much to do, and they can only see a tiny little piece of the puzzle. And then in larger national uh, environmental groups, how do we connect those so that they don't appear to be money machines to the other? The conservatives think that the big greens are just churning out activities so they can make money. And, and then how do we link that with the various spiritual communities? So it's such a fantastic crisis, I would hate to miss the opportunity of connecting all of these networks. I'm going to be in Paris. I have so much admiration and, and love your courage. I'm going to give you my contact information, and I want to play with you all. So. Love it. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Let's get one more here, too. Thanks. My name is Luis Alfaro, and my question is about education and accountability. Okay. Um, is Excuse me, we had a little distraction. Can you start again? Yeah. Sorry. Please, can you start again? I'm oh. very sorry. We were. My name is uh, Luis Alfaro, and we have is two questions one in regard to education, and the other one is about accountability. The, the U.S. system, the, the education of the U.S. system, it exists by any chance in the curriculum that they should start, or is there, it doesn't, is it, 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 they don't have it, they should start something about uh, teaching kids how to protect the earth, how to protect the environment, because according to the gentleman that I spoke to, 21 years old, uh, youth guy, he told me that he never, in, in high school, no, in middle school, no, is no education at all in regards to protect the earth. You know, and, and that's a very sad in this country that doesn't exist that. Then for me that education has to start with the childhood, in the classroom, and if we should push, if they don't exist, we should put the U.S. government has to be part of that. And the other one is the accountability of the U.S. government, our representatives, you know, that, and that's also his question was, and I'm glad to talk to him, Cameron, and he said to me that, um, that he's concerned that, that the laws and, and everything that we create in regard to Congress and to pass laws, stuff like that, they, they don't respect that. And then how can we make uh, people, the politicians, you know, to be more accountable about what they promise and they don't do? Thank you. Thank you so much. Sure. Um, do you want to start, Ariel? Since okay, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to start because um, I'm I'm actually going to work my way back <clears throat> from from accountability um, because I think that accountability is really important and it's one of those areas that I think a lot of people are nervous about. Um, hold, holding people accountable takes courage, um, but. 
if we don't hold people accountable, then we're never going to get what we need. And it goes to what we were saying earlier about politicians and, the, and reclaiming our democracy. Um, a lot of politicians, even here in California, where we've done quite a bit to address these problems, um, still very much uh, are able to get away with things because they're not held accountable. Uh, and we're often so busy in our daily lives that we are not watching and that we don't know exactly what to look for. So making sure that communities know um, what politicians are doing is really important and making sure that people know um, that their voices matter. I mean, I can tell you, and I'm sure that, that, that Annie and Ariel can, and, and Osprey can say the same thing. When you go and you talk to people in Congress or in Sacramento, they'll say, well, you know, but we haven't heard from anybody. And honestly, even five phone calls make a difference. Even five letters sometimes make a difference. So to think, it's, it's, it's that mentality where we think, oh, well, if I don't recycle this, it doesn't matter. It's just one bottle. Well, no, everything matters and, and every single voice matters. So those five phone calls can make the difference between getting the votes that we want on something or not getting them. And I don't think we learn that in schools, which goes leads me to education. We, we've lost our our tradition of, of civic engagement because it's not taught in schools. So forget about even talking about environmentalism, period. When we're, it, it, we need to talk about activism in school. We need to talk about our role in the democratic process and the fact that it's really on us. Not just learning about the three branches of government, but how we can influence them and how they actually work together. And again, kind of giving that power back to our kids so that they know that it actually matters if they click, yes, I want this on, on a Greenpeace email or on an RDC email or on a, you know, any issue that worries you, that your voice matters and that you can send a letter or make a phone call. That is key. Yes, we need more environmental education. Um, unfortunately, even there we see influences. We, we know that most recently um, there's been influence by the fossil fuel industry to get climate change completely erased from textbooks, which is insane. But that is the level of just sinking as low as that to make sure that we're erasing um, the truth, erasing facts. Not surprising, though, when you think about movements like uh, indigenous people and slavery, look how we've rewritten history. Um, so we need to teach, more than anything, critical thinking. And, and that is what ties all of us together. We need to, all of us, continue to be critical thinkers. And any child that we have around us, make sure that they, too, are thinking critically. I, I mean, I think education is at the heart of the first question as well. I mean, how do we build connections with communities working in isolation? Is it's about educating our children to understand that you know, critical thinking um, and knowing that it's it, there's many many things out there happening um, and encouraging activism and standing up for your democratic rights or your rights as indigenous peoples. Um, education is is a huge huge thing that uh, I think we're failing our future generations with, and that is being manipulated by corporations and entities with a vested interest in keeping us in the dark and in isolation. Um, and I, you know, I, one of the things that I, the stories that I often tell is that I, I consider myself an incredibly privileged person because of the education that my parents provided me of understanding my connection to the land that spiritual and 
cosmological connection to the planet Earth and Mother Earth and all of the creatures that live within it is a huge privilege that I didn't know that I had until I was an adult. And there are, we need to like kind of get our kids out of the classrooms a little bit and reconnect them with that. We need, we need to, as a part of our curriculum, is putting our hands physically in the dirt and reconnecting with where we come from um, and, and, and teaching critical thinking with that connection to the earth. I think if we started with something as simple as that, imagine what that generation would provide for us. Imagine the kind of critical thinking and analysis that they would have of economic systems if they had that deeper connection um, to those places that provided everything for them. Um, and, and I mean, I credit my parents so greatly for having a mother who was an academic and a father who was from the bush to be able to have the critical lens connected to the earth. And so I'm incredibly privileged for that. And I, if we could, imagine if we bred an entire civilization that was like that, we, we would have like, you know, maybe we'd have all the solutions right now. I don't know. And absolutely accountability. I mean, laws are not upheld. Treaty agreements have been broken. We live in a society of broken promises and broken laws. Um, and I think one of the biggest problems right now is, the, is corporate personhood. Corporate personhood has allowed these corporations to push and bend the laws as a person without actually ever having the consequences of being a person. And they have created, they have like almost erased accountability from a lot of our, uh, of a lot of the governments because they've manipulated them to a point that it's hard to even make them accountable to the people because they're being manipulated by the money and the corporations. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, the first question around building connections of communities working in isolation, that is, a, that is a, something that I struggle with every day. I mean, I work with rural communities, rural First Nation communities in Alberta, and it's hard. They are. Particularly indigenous communities have had historically been put into places of crisis. So we're in constant crisis mode trying to address the immediate needs of suicide, alcohol and substance abuse, domestic violence, gang violence, housing crises, food crisis, water crisis. In Canada, first world country, we have more First Nations communities with no running water or no potable running water than any other uh, demographic of population in, in, in Canada. Uh, we have communities living in third world conditions. Of course, they're not gonna be talking about climate change, but they're the most, impacted by climate change. So how do we change that? And, and I do think it comes back to education. And it's a very, very difficult thing, but we have to start, stop believing, or yeah, stop believing that those communities can't see beyond that, because they can. We just have to give them the tools to be able to do that. We have to work with them, we have to provide them with that free, prior, and informed consent. Uh, thank you. <laughs> okay. So, um, just, just in brief, also, just to, to echo uh, what to the panelists said, it's very interesting because um, in our network, we do different trainings for women around the world and really looking at how women are being the most impacted by climate change and yet they're key to solutions. And when we go into communities, whether it's in the Middle East, North Africa region, we've worked in uh, the DR Congo and in South America, and we do what we call listening circles to find out what the communities of women 
uh, that we're working with want the most, and education always comes first. They all say, we want climate education, we want advocacy education, we want media education, we want to know, you know about what we can do with our waterways around reforestation, but it's always education first, so it's interesting that you know, this comes up because it, it's, there's a real demand, and obviously we're not getting it from our traditional uh, institutions, and so I think that's something also we can provide is uh, uh, education in the communities we're working with. So let's go ahead on this side, get a question. Thank you for taking questions. Uh, my name is Naeem Edwards. Um, I just want to say that I'm really grateful for the passion, the conviction, and the sacrifices that you all have made. You're a testament to the value of women in leadership and I'm really grateful for all the work you've done and will do in the future. Uh, my question, kind of like Ariel just mentioned, of broken treaties and broken laws, is what the value of national and international policy organizing is worth uh, versus just really focusing on building resiliency at the local level in your communities versus kind of always dealing with the slow bureaucratic process of UN policies that might never even contribute to changing um, what happens at the grassroots level anyway. Thank you. Thank you, great question. One over here. Hi, my name my name's Sharon. I'm an artist and an educator. And in terms of education and critical thinking about root causes, I was just wondering um, about your groups. And I want to thank you, the three of you, four of you for your work and for making the connections. And I'm wondering about the connection of the root cause of animal agriculture and how it comes into the education of uh, the groups that you work with. Thanks. I'll try to keep it shorter, because I know that once I start talking, I get on a roll, and we could be here until until the Paris Convention. Um, in terms of where, where to put our activist energy in terms of the UN conventions or the um, immediate resilience, what I think is this is an all-hands-on-deck situation. We need to be pushing everywhere. Um, and so what I think is do what turns you on. Some people love going to those UN conventions and wearing nice suits and work in the halls. Other people like creating regenerative agriculture in their kids' middle school. Like, it is all good. Um, one of the nice things about having such a complex systemic challenge as climate change is there is an infinite number of ways that we could engage. You don't even have to do something boring because there's so many options to choose from. So pick that which turns you on because it is so so much more fun to be doing something that we feel a good um, alignment with and a real passion for. And we got a long, long struggle ahead of us. And so pick, pick where you want to push. That'll be the most fun. I was giving a talk recently in a college and explaining a campaign that I had worked on for a decade, which finally won. And the student said, what percentage of what you did actually contributed to the success? I thought about it. I said, Probably 15 to 20% of what we totally did is what created the tipping point. And he said, well, why didn't you just do that 15 or 20%? I said, because you don't know which 15 or 20% it is. So you got to do it all. And collectively, it will be enough to push us over that tipping point. So yes to lobbying in the UN. Yes to resilient strategies at home. Yes, yes, yes to all. That is an all of the above strategy. Yes. Um, what was it say? Oh, animal 
issues. It is increasingly clear that um, our, especially our heavily industrialized animal agriculture base is a huge problem for, for water, for climate, for personal health, for pretty much everything. It is a huge problem. Um, Greenpeace has a wonderful campaign called Food for Life campaign that fights for a healthy food system, which absolutely means reducing our dependency on animals. It's just so clear that the planet cannot sustain billions and billions of meat eaters. So um, it's a very, very important issue, and I'm glad to see so many environmental groups embracing it. Um, just one little, little add-on to that is that the value of national or international policies and what's going on, um, is there value in them? I, that's a really tough question because because it, it's absolutely like we there's value in everything, but um, for me the value in participating on a personal level uh, why I would be going to the COP and expending energy is is it's it's kind of for an information dump for myself because I want to know what the heck some of these policymakers are even talking about doing. And I think that's a part of having that informed consent process. Because these people are going to have those conversations. What value do they have in addressing climate? I don't really know if they have any value. Um, but what I do know is I, I have value in knowing what I'm up against. So, um, And then the people that are in there trying to make sure that they aren't being adversarial policies that we're going to have to fight, that's, that's an important role in the people on the ground and all those things that she said. Um, as far as like, agriculture and animal um, where, did, where is the role in, in challenging or looking at that within the work that I do? For, for my community, you know, the stressors on the environment, we think a lot about the agriculture. The agricultural um, industry in Alberta, cattle uh, and agriculture, both, you know, growing food, um, like plants or animals for food, is a huge stressor on our ecosystems, and we completely recognize that. When we challenge the policies around the withdrawals of the river systems and the stressors on our, on our ecosystems, we name those as part of it. Um, the difference between as an indigenous person saying that we need to stop eating, like, I don't think you can tell an indigenous person in my community to become a vegetarian. That is like basically sacrilegious in our community because we are subsistence people. Um, our people in our community, and it is very, very much about um, being con conservation officers as part of that. Like, it's not like we go out and be like, I'm going to go and get 16 moose today so I can prove that I'm a mighty hunter. It's like, no, I need to fill the freezers of my cousin Sue and my aunt, you know, Sarah, and cook them Jean down the road because they're not going to have food for the winter. In my community of Fort Chippewan, there's one grocery store. We're a head of lettuce, a wilty, crappy head of iceberg lettuce costs $8. Where a gallon of milk costs $16. So subsistence lifestyles and eating fish and moose and caribou and beavers and ducks and we eat swans. I know that's Oh, that's so sad. But we eat swans and they're delicious. Um, it's a part of, <laughs> and we eat beavers too, and they're good. Um, but it's a part of our subsistence, and we have to respect that different people in different areas need different sources of food to survive, um, and that we have to respect those differences and what those ecosystems can maintain. We have a very, very short growing season. Are we looking at growing food to subsidize? Absolutely, my community wants to develop aquaponics and greenhouses so that we can have that produce, so that we can keep that stressor of a growing population off of those 
animals that we survive on for subsistence. It's about balance and creating those fine balances, but also respecting that not everyone can get quinoa and tofu and tempeh at the grocery store. I just want to add to you, there is a huge difference between subsistence meat consumption yeah. and even small family farms and the modern industrial corporate mega agri agriculture where you have 10,000 hogs on a farm. Absolutely. So all meat is not equal here. There's yeah. a really big and difference. And I just, it's a big thing though that's happened in our communities when we talk about meat and eating meat and consuming meat. It, it's, it, it can be a really contentious area when it comes to indigenous people, indigenous people's rights. Um, and, and, but we have a very critical lens of the agricultural and, and, and the um, livestock industry. It is contaminating and destroying our ecosystems and we absolutely recognize that. But just remembering within the animal rights movement that there has to be an analysis of indigenous people and subsistence lifestyle that, that I really feel is missing. It's missing, it's a critical analysis on that, on the other spectrum that we absolutely have to integrate into that. So I just really wanted to name that because it, it's come up many times in my work where people are like, why are you eating meat? Meat is murder or wearing leather or wearing fur and it's, yeah. And, and I'll just add to that because that, that's really important and I'm glad you named it. I think that that's, again, that's one of the spaces where we as environmentalists need to check ourselves, you know, because there's a lot of judgment out there. And that's what's alienating sometimes. And if we're going to go walk out there and say, oh, why are you eating me? Let's look at that. Let's look at how the bigger picture and let's listen first because um, it, it happens, you know, hunters and, and fishermen, they're huge allies and wonderful, powerful mm -hmm. allies. They love us having water. They want clean water. They want the same things we want, because otherwise they can't go out there and do their sport and everything with balance and fairness. But let's open our minds a little bit, and even among ourselves, to, to make sure that we're not automatically just being reactionary, but actually thoughtfully processing these things. No, absolutely. I think that's really important uh, as we're building movements for these big social changes that we want. It is an ecosystem like nature and not everything in the ecosystem is doing the same thing as the thing next to it, which makes the ecosystem strong. And so I do think it is our responsibility to find out, you know, that it's not one size fits all. It's an ecosystem and we need to respect each community and what that community strength and its own nature is. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. And I also just wanted to mention too that, you know, we're talking about agriculture, 60 to 80% of all household food production in the developing countries done by women. And again, this is another, another area that's underreported and how much women are not at the decision-making table when it comes to uh, agriculture and they're the ones doing the local organic farming saving seeds and this is also underrepresented so much in international policy so again we need to lift up indigenous voices we need to lift up women's voices we need to lift up the voices of nature and really understand that part of this problem um, with this this kind of corporate top-down model is it's really destroying the ecosystem of humanity and creating these huge imbalances and actually these solutions are here if we would allow these voices to be heard and restore balance. So thank you so much for your comments on that. Mm -hmm. The next questions. Yes, hello. Um, I'm Hannah Apricot with Permaculture Magazine and yes, I want to echo our appreciation of you being such wonderful, inspiring leaders. Um, I 
I'm actually curious of all four of you if you are familiar with the transition movement. Um, it's kind of a parallel movement. Um, I see some nodding heads, so that's great. But specifically, also, um, there are 21 stories that is on the transitionnetwork.org website that have been compiled for Paris of stories gathered from transition movements around the world that are offering these human sides and could also be real tools in, for your organization. And uh, they are going to be there in Paris. But um, wanted to see if you guys were aware of that, as well as also the soil excuse me, soilstory.com, talking about regenerative agriculture and using soil as a huge carbon sink. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, my name's Alif. I come from Hawaii, so aloha. Um, I wanted to ask about two things. One is the idea of blockadia and um, governments and people being able to say, we don't want these. Uh, we don't want oil or coal, ta coal taken out of you know the ground. Um, my understanding. So one of the most recent rounds of the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, TPP talks were, were in Hawaii recently, and I know it's a very secretive agreement, but I understand that one of the pieces of that is that it gives the power to corporations to actually sue governments for lost profits if they pass laws that don't let them take the oil out of the ground. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak to that, what we can do about that, um, if, what we can do about that. Um, so that's my main question. And the other thing is I, I, I'm glad that the, the agrochemical industrial food aspect of climate change was addressed as Hawaii is the epicenter for, you know, the research and development of genetically engineered seeds um, for herb res uh, pesticide resistance. So we're dealing with huge environmental issues and environmental justice issues in Hawaii. Thank you. Thank you. Who wants to take on the TPB? Oh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, all, all of us, us do, but what are the solutions? <laughs> I don't know. How can, we, how can we address corporate personhood? I don't, I mean, I, I, my solution is like, we should abolish corporate personhood, and then we would solve the TPP problem. I just don't know how to do that. <laughs> There's my answer. <laughs> Um, so it is true that the TPP, which is the new generation of trade agreements, would allow corporations to sue governments for passing regulations that protect the environment and health. That's obviously insane. This new generation of trade agreements is not actually about stuff that moves across borders. It's about a bunch of rules that really enshrine corporate control over our global economy. And it's probably one of the most important places to push is to prevent these things. I think one of the best groups working on it is Public Citizen. They have a, a team called Global Trade Watch. Really fantastic. If you, if you go to Public Citizen website, you'll see Global Trade Watch. You can sign up for their updates. It's really wonky following this stuff, but thank God for Lori Wallach, who, who, who loves studying this stuff and then translates it into regular speak and tells us things to do. Um, it's incredibly important. The other thing you can do, which I'm saying as Annie Leonard, not as the executive director of Greenpeace, is you can vote for Bernie. Because if Bernie <laughs> wins, <laughs> that thing is not going through in the US. <laughs> That's an individual opinion. I wish we had a candidate like that in Canada, but we don't, so I don't know. Um, I, I, I wanted to say about the Transition Town thing, um, 
or transition movement. My my community is actually looking at building a complete transition town for our for our community. Um, 100% off the grid. It would be the first off the grid First Nations community in all of Canada, uh, and it's something that we are actually looking at. But we are coming into a local uh, First Nation election, so it'll all depend on who gets elected in my community as well, whether or not that comes true. So I'd, I'd love to look at, thank you for your comments because I'm going to share that with my community. Uh, we are winding down to about, we only have a few minutes left. Can we get, maybe what we'll do, you can let me know if it's right, we do a question here, a question here, but then you also make your kind of final comments. Will that be all right? Is there anyone, okay. Hi. Um, I'm Mary Chase. I work with the Pachamama Alliance um, in communications and media and curriculum development. And since Paul Hawken talked yesterday, I've been thinking about is climate change happening to me or is climate change happening for me? And where I get stuck in this realm is wondering about how to educate people without getting getting them to go numb with fear. Mm. And so that's really my question. Um, what's the correct balance of really telling the truth about what's possible uh, in, in our future if we don't change our path and, um, and trying to ha see how climate change is working for us? Okay. Hi, my name is Rose, and we're all from the Marin County Youth Commission. Uh, our question is, as young activists, how can we engage other youth in the general public to get people to engage and to care about climate change? And where is the disconnect between activists and youth who are bystanders, and how we can try to bridge that gap? I'll, I'll take on uh, youth just a second, just because I want to say that um, I think a lot of the barriers are in our head and in our traditions. And um, we need to first break down our, our own limitations, our self-imposed limits, um, because those are the hardest ones to deal with. Dealing with um, the barriers that are put on by society, I think we're, we all as activists can handle that um, once we conquer our fears. So as young people, it's hard to do that because you feel like, oh gosh, you know, what do I know? I'm just a high schooler or a college student or wh wherever you find yourself. Um, but I think it goes back to what we've said throughout this entire conversation is, is that matters. And as that, in the same way that you look at a, a giant tree and you think, how can that little bacteria determine the lifespan of this tree and influence it? Oh, it absolutely can. And it can make or break it. So we need to remember that for ourselves and to tell especially young people everywhere that, that their voices matter. And that, again, it's not about data and proof points. It's, it's about just real activism talking to people, telling your story, showing up, making some noise, and demanding this, because ultimately um, it's your future, and you have a right to ask for that. So I just want to congratulate you all, and thank you for being here, and encourage you to, to, to just move forward, kind of maybe put your, your doubt brain on hold and, and just do it. Sometimes that's all we can do.
I think, hmm, honestly, keep pushing forward and believing that even the smallest little thing can make a huge difference. Like you can be at the smallest little drop, but if you keep dropping, that little drip of water can make a dent in the hardest of rocks. And that every little, every little voice, every little thing that we do adds up. And it, you know, don't be disheartened because all of your other peers aren't standing with you. Because I can guarantee you, every single one of us were in the same situation when we were your age as people going, why is no one seeing what I'm seeing or feeling what I'm feeling? And, and as, as I've come into my own as an activist, as an, an older, like an adult person, as coming from the youth movement into an adult thing, this is just, it's just the way it goes. And you know, it might be you sitting up here in six years. And just hold on to that, because the fact that you are here right now you're making that change by setting an example for the next generation. Um, and so, I mean, you, there have been so many young people that have come up to me and said, thank you so much for, you, for what you do. But I'm thanking them for being here. So I thank you for being here. I thank you for making the time and the commitment to even ask that question. But you're, you have the answers yourselves. You guys are doing them. You are leading by example. Um, and, and I think that that actually answers the question about how do we not strike fear? We show that there are young people standing up, and if there are young people that can stand up, they are the examples for our future. Um, I, I do want to say one thing, though. It is hard, because like, I, I have a 16-year-old daughter. Everyone's like, why do you have a 16-year-old daughter? I do. I have a 16. She'll be 17 in March. Um, and she's, she's, she's afraid. She's afraid of climate change. She's afraid of what's going on. And even though I'm out here on the front lines, it's hard because she's paralyzed by it. She's literally said, do you really think you're going to win, mom? And that's like a really, really like hard because I want to win for her. And she just says, I feel like the whole world's falling apart. And no one's listening to the people that have answers. And I'm like, well, you could be a part of it. And she's like, I just see how much energy it takes from you. And she's like, I don't have that much energy to give to the world. And that's a really hard thing to see your own child feel paralyzed by the fear of climate change. Um, but she supports what I do, and she believes in what I do. She's just afraid. But I'm just, <laughs> at the same time, I see that, and I hear that, and I and know it's a reality. And then I see people like you, and I'm like, we don't all have to be afraid. And my daughter is becoming more out of her shell as she's getting older, and she is wanting to stand up more. And, and it's because of people like you guys. So I just want to thank you for that, because it actually is a big deal to me. <laughs> I don't think there is one answer about what's the right balance of fear or optimism when you're communicating about climate change because everybody's different. And as I quoted Saul Alinsky before, is to talk to people where they're at, not where you're at. Um, the one thing that definitely doesn't work, I know I tried it for 20 years and no one listened, is, is our whiny, wonky data bunch. <laughs> like, environmentalists are such a grim, whiny, and wonky crowd, and then we wonder why no one invites us to parties. It's like, <laughs> we're a drag. <laughs> and so 
know, restrain from the data dump, um, do a lot of listening. Before I start talking to folks, I listen first. Because then if you listen, you can find where are the points of commonality that we can connect on. Because what's more important than transferring everything we know is building an actual human connection that yeah. then you can build upon. And different people respond to different things. Van Jones told me once that communities with a lot of um, crises respond more to opportunities. Communities with a lot of opportunities respond more to crises and fear. So if you're in inner city Detroit, you might want to talk about the jobs creation potential of dealing with climate change. That might not go over so well in some incredibly privileged area. You might want to talk about the loss of polar bears there. You know, you just got to find the right message to hit to meet with the right audience. And it really requires a huge amount of humility and listening and restraint on the data. For the high schoolers, we have this totally cool activist network that we would love you to join. <laughs> if you go to the Greenpeace website, you can find it on Greenwire. We have summer camps where we teach people how to do everything from facilitate meetings to chain themselves to shareholder meetings. These are very important life skills. And they have really great parties. Have. Yes, yeah, so great <laughs> parties. Um, so we would love to have you engage with our high school network around the country. and We can provide all kinds of encouragement and skills and training and connect you with other students who really do care. I think the most important lesson and I've learned from doing this over 30 years is don't do it alone. The most important first step is find a friend who cares because it really is community that will get us through this. Mm. Well, I just want to thank all of you pioneers for coming to this session and uh, I know it's been really incredible to hear from the three of you and you know, going through this process of the climate crisis, the fact that it is an existential crisis, that it is so um, epic and to have the wisdom from three, you know, really experienced women uh, who, who have many different perspectives. Or, okay, so it has been just really, uh, um, you know, inspiring and productive. So thank you so much, and let's give them a big applause. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. <laughs>